There we go. <laughs> Welcome, readers. Welcome, all you readers from all around the world. Adam Andrews here, Mr. A, to my students across the country and my students from all over. Coming to you live from Center for Lit headquarters in beautiful downtown Rice, Washington, the cultural hub of the Northwest, with another edition of Center for Lit Live, the online Socratic book club that's sweeping the nation one summer session at a time. We've got a bunch of kids, a bunch of readers, a bunch of intelligent young minds gathered around me today to discuss a classic of Western literature just for the fun of it. And I'll tell you what, that's exactly what we're about to do. So, sit down, buckle in, strap in, and let's do it, shall we? I think we shall. Welcome, everyone. Glad that you could make it. As I mentioned, I'm Adam Andrews, but you can call me Mr. A. And I'm glad to be with you for the first of our Summer Session Discussions 2015. And we are just as happy as we can be to welcome you to Center for Lit Live. I'm joined, as I always am, by my beautiful and loquacious sidekick, the lovely and talented Mrs. A. Hi, Mr. A. How you doing, Mrs. A? Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Well, it is just awfully good to hear your voice in a literary context once again. Oh, well. I hope I can live up to that wonderful well, introduction. <laughs> we, we hung up the literary talking shoes a few weeks ago at the end of last uh, semester and haven't been back in the saddle since. So it's nice to, uh, nice to be here with you again, Mrs. A., hopefully to discuss this classic of Western literature at a deep and very profound level. Deep and profound. Both deep and profound. I realize that those are synonyms, but wow. we're going to do them both. Let's do. <laughs> so I see that we've got a large selection of students joining us today, and I want to take a couple of minutes at the beginning of our discussion to introduce you to the software that you're using to participate the GoToWebinar software, uh, because this will help you to jump in and uh, take advantage of all the things we have to offer in this discussion. So I want everyone who's gathered here today to look at the right-hand side of your computer screen. There should be a control panel there, or if not a complete control panel, at least a little tab that has an orange bar at the top with a white arrow in it. An orange bar with a white arrow. If that white arrow is pointing to the left... Go ahead and click it, and you will see the control panel slide out from the right-hand edge of your screen. In that control panel, you'll find a place to type a chat message. You'll find a place to click on a hand icon so that you can raise your hand. And you might even find an, a microphone icon that will allow you to mute and unmute yourself. These, contr these controls will be useful to you as we go along allow you to uh, participate. If you type a message in the chat box, for example, Mrs. A and I will both see it. None of the other students in the class will see a chat message. That's a private message to us. If you click the hand icon, your hand will go up and we will see that you would like to speak out loud. And at some point we will call on you and let you contribute to the discussion. When you raise your hand to speak out loud, everyone can hear you and they can raise their hands in response to uh, continue the conversation. So if you have a technical comment about your computer or about your screen or something that you don't want to share with the whole class, go ahead and type it in the chat box. And if you have something that you'd like to uh, share with the class, go ahead and raise your hand and we will let you participate. 
One question or one point about muting, you are all muted at this point when you join the class. And so there's no need to really click the mute button. When it's your turn to talk and you've got your hand up, I will unmute you and then you'll be able to speak. And then when it's, when you've finished speaking, I'll mute you back down again. So no need to mess with the mute button uh, usually. And finally, if you're having trouble hearing me or if you're having trouble um, with your voice going out, it may be a problem with your audio setup and your control panel has a section called audio that you can click and manipulate the various settings there. There are two choices for how to participate in the class. You can use the mic and speakers, which sometimes is the most effective, or you can click the telephone button and just call in on the, uh, on the landline. If you've got the mic and speakers selection checked, there is a little sound check um, option where you can see whether your mic is actually sending out a good signal and whether you can hear the sound coming through the speakers. So, uh, in the audio section is where you can you can adjust those settings. If you're having any trouble, go ahead and send me a chat and I may be able to help you as well. Any other things of a technical nature that I forgot to mention, Mrs. A, that you can think of? I don't think so. Okay. Well, let's try it real quickly before we jump into our discussion today. Uh, everyone who can hear me, send me a chat saying, hi, Mr. A, or something like that. And we'll see if the chat function is working on everybody's computer. Everybody hear me? Send me a chat saying, hi, Mr. A. Let me just see here. Oh, there we go. They're rolling in. Very good. Looks like I've gotten chat from just about everyone. Tanya asks, can you explain how to do this on the iPad? The controls on the iPad are very similar to the controls on a regular computer. It's just that there are... Um, uh, it's just the touch screen. I believe that you can make the control panel slide out from the right-hand side of your screen uh, just by swiping. Also, there's that tab that has the orange square with the white arrow in it. It should work just about the same. If you continue to have trouble, Tanya, go ahead and send me another chat. Looks like the chat function is working great. Let's try this. How about everybody raise their hand now? Everybody raise their hand. Notice that when the arrow next to your hand icon is pointing down, <clears throat> it means your hand is up. If the arrow is pointing up, it means your hand is down. That's a little odd, I know. It anticipates what you're going to do next. It anticipates what you're going to do next, yes. Very good. So I see a few um, students who have not raised their hand, and I'm wondering if that means it doesn't work. Uh, Alec, can you raise your hand? I'm not going to call on you. Yep, very good. Very good, just making sure. Cambria, is your hand? is your hand been raised? There it is, very good. Um, Christopher, how about you? Can you raise your hand as well? Christopher, if you can hear me, click the hand icon and let's make sure it's working. Okay, Christopher, I'm not seeing you, your hand go up. Emily, you are an old hand in our class, so I know you can do it. You just have already probably put it down again. Good. Anybody who's having trouble with the hand icon, go ahead and send me a chat. Uh, let me see, Tanya, if your hand raising worked. Just a second. Yes, it did. I can see it. Great. Okay. Everybody put your hands back down. And from now on, if you've got a, a question or a comment and your hand goes up, I will know that you actually want to say something out loud so that the whole class can hear and contribute to our discussion. Okay. 
enough of the technical details. Um, oh, no, that's not true. Two more technical details. And then I will let you go, Mrs. A. She's already doing. <laughs> she's already given me the look that she's going to give me starting in September all the way through the school year, which is can we please dispense with the technical details and start talking about literature? And we absolutely can. Can't we just but, use a number two Ticonderoga? <laughs> but I want to make sure that everybody knows that a recording of this session will be available on our website by late tonight, but certainly by tomorrow morning at centerforlit.com. And I'll be sending you out an email letting you know where you can go to download the recording and download the notes from today's discussion. Also, I want to let you know that if you enjoy your discussion today and would like to join us for a full year of discussions just like this, you can register on our website at centerforlit.com slash academy slash home.aspx. And that website is on the notes that we'll be distributing after this. So we hope that you enjoy it today. We hope you, you'll come and join us for the full year. And finally, we're going to be using a method for discussing literature that uh, Mrs. A and I have developed. We call it the teaching the classics method. And there are a few things to know about it, but we will actually explain them to you as we go along today. Because what we want to do is focus on the book that we all read together and how glorious and wonderful it is. <laughs> and as the uh, teaching the classics principles come up, we will explain them to you in the course of our discussion. Any questions? Any questions on any subject before we start? And Mrs. A, I will just mention while the kids are deciding whether to ask a question. That was nine minutes. Nine minutes yeah. that we don't get to use to discuss no, the story. No, only nine minutes. Only. And we actually got everybody up to speed on GoToWebinar and everything. I uh, think that's pretty good. I think it is too, Mr. A. All right. You get an A. Very good. Well, no further questions. Let's go ahead and begin Today's book that you have all read, I'm assuming, in its entirety in preparation for this discussion is Watership Down by Richard Adams, a beloved American classic, I should say English classic, written in 1972, uh, before most of you were born. I was only three, actually, when the book came out, and I, it was read to me by my parents at a very young age, so it's a beloved book in the Andrews family. I'm assuming that you all made it to the end. And would like to know before we dive in, uh, whether it was a first time around for you or you, whether you have read it before. So send me a chat to that effect. First time or second time or it's an old favorite. What thinkest thou? Let's see if I've got some hands. There you go. Ooh, lots of first times. Oh, look at that. Some first times. Even some hands. Caroline, your hand is up and okay. you're on. Go ahead, Caroline. Um, can you hear me? Loud and clear. Okay. I really enjoyed the book. I thought it was very interesting how Richard Adams, um, I don't know the right word, sort of made some of the characters as people from other books or real life. Like in my introduction, it's written by him. And it says, for instance, Fibber um, was modeled after the prophetess Cassandra from one of the Greek classics. And oh, other yeah. characters are modeled after I just thought that was really interesting. But I loved it. The book. Very good. Very good. Yeah, it is interesting how uh, um, this is not just a book about rabbits, is it, Mrs. A? No, absolutely not. We might think it's a book about rabbits. On its face, it's a book about rabbits. But as Caroline has suggested, there are echoes of not only other books, but other ideas besides just how to raise and care for rabbits going on in here, right? Well, not only that, but our first clue is that the, these rabbits actually talk and think and behave. Not that they don't have rabbit type habits, but they have relationships like human beings have relationships. Isn't there a literary term for that, Mrs. A? There is. I'm so glad you asked, Mr. A. <laughs> Does anybody know what the literary term is? Um, 
that would describe animals acting like people? Caroline and Morgan both dive in with personification. Oh, that's pretty close. Which is very close. Very personification close. is usually used to describe an inanimate object that is treated like a person, like a bucket or a brick or something. Right. What about another? Michael says characterization, which is also close. We're thinking of a little bit more technical a term. Mrs. A, what is it? It's called anthropomorphism. 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 Anthro, right? Man. Anthro, the Greek for man. Yeah. So taking the shape of a man. Po, which is the Greek for nothing that I know of. Morphism. Yeah. So when an animal behaves like a man, when human uh, attributes are given to an animal, then we say that anthropomorphism is being used. Especially when they talk. Absolutely. When they talk. And And when they emote. Well, it's interesting. And all this kind of demonstrate intention. Yeah. As soon as they start talking. They start doing all of those other things, don't they? Yeah. They start Creating acting society. Exactly right. They start acting like people all the way down. Yeah. A couple more hands, and then we're going to jump into talking about the story's structure. Linus, your hand is up. Go ahead. And you'll need to click your microphone button one time, Linus, because you're still muted on your end. I don't hear you, Linus. You've muted yourself. We're going to come back to you in just a second, and we're going to take uh, Michelle's hand. Go ahead, Michelle. Michelle, can you hear me? Michelle, if you want to check your audio section to make sure that uh, you can be heard, I'll go ahead and mute you and then put your hand down. And if you'd like to speak, you can put it right back up again. Um, Caroline asks, so Peter Rabbit is anthropomorphized? Peter Rabbit is anthropomorphized, yes. Absolutely. Exactly right. The anthropomorphism, anytime an animal is treated like a human, especially if he's given the power of speech. Yeah, very good. Let's talk about Watership Down. We've already mentioned, of course, that it's about rabbits, but I want to scroll down to the second page of our notes that you can probably see on my screen now. And I want you to uh, take a look at what we call the story chart. And this story chart is a is a technique that we use to get all the pertinent details about a story's structure into our minds at one time. And I want to talk real quickly about the five words that are in all capital letters on this story chart. Conflict down at the bottom of the oval, plot right above that, setting and characters to the upper right and upper left sides, and theme in the middle. We're going to talk about those five elements of this story one at a time and see if we can't discuss them and get a grasp of their significance and see how they all work together to help this author not only tell an engaging story about these rabbits and their journey, but also discuss an eternal theme. Mrs. A, before we even get going, what in the world is an eternal theme? An eternal theme is like a a big idea, um, a a great idea that people from all times and places uh, um, across history have talked about. Okay. Give me an example. Um, The meaning of life. Ah, yes. Um, Loyalty. Sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. Fathers and sons. Exactly. Yes, very good. Something like that. Mm -hmm. Usually we find an author writes a novel in order to discuss one or more eternal themes. And the point of our discussion, of course, is going to be to find out not only which theme Richard Adams is interested in discussing, but what he has to say about it. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to talk about the setting of the story and the upper left-hand part of the chart. We're going to talk about the characters in the story, upper right-hand part. We're going to talk about the conflicts in the story, the problems that are driving this story forward. 
We're going to talk about the plot of the story, the sequence of events, or more specifically, we're going to talk about the exposition of the story, the rising action of the story, the climactic moment of the story's plot, the part that happens after the climactic moment, which we call the denouement, <laughs> What's also that? known as the falling action. or the falling action. And finally, the conclusion of the story. We're going to decide which details of the story go in each one of those categories and why. Because that's basically the structure or the shape right. that the story takes. And we're going to use all those details to arrive at a discussion of the author's theme and how he uses it and what he has to say about it. At that point, we can say, wow, Watership Down. We understand it at a bit deeper level than we did before. And along the way, if you have comments about these things as we go along, please raise your hand and share with us your thoughts. But let's go ahead and begin by talking about the story's setting. Who knows what the setting of a story is? What right? do we mean by the setting? Yeah. What the setting of any story is. What's the definition of the term? Caroline, go ahead. And you can, there you go. The setting is the place in which the story takes place. Okay. Where the story is. It's the place where the story happens. And in this case, where does the story happen? Where does Watership Down happen, Caroline? Doesn't it happen in the Downs of England? In the Downs of England. Now you've begged the question. You're going to have to tell me what a down is because I live in Northwest America and we don't have downs here. I'm not positive, but aren't they like rocky, chalky cliffs? areas uh well i think there's certainly certainly hills i'm not sure about about rocky chalky cliffs but they're definitely hills um aiden says rolling hills and the the down that uh that the rabbits are driving for watership down is described as a green grassy hilltop right basically fields and hills fields and hills yeah very good very good uh let's see um any other comments on the setting? Caroline mentions that the setting is the place where the story happens. Is the setting does the setting also include some other details besides place? Morgan says time also. Good. So when does the story take so place? So when does the story happen in this particular story? Is this is the time of the story important? Somebody raise your hand and tell me that. Devin, go ahead. Devin, can you hear me? <laughs> Sorry, my mind is messed up. What was the question? Uh, you raise your hand in response to the question about the setting. Where, when does this story happen? Sometime around the early 1900s when the cars were first made in Loud. Oh, very good. You you guess that it happens in the early 20th century because cars were relatively new and were loud. So you're using a detail from the story. There's a really loud car in it to make a guess as to the time frame that the story is set in. Good. I think that's a, probably a pretty good guess. I think Mrs. A sort of alluded to the fact that the set, the time setting might not be super significant other than the fact that there's a car in it. Although, what time of year is the story set? Oh, yeah. Catherine made a comment about that that might be important. Catherine mentions that the story happens in summer. Yeah, it's between spring and fall over the course of a year. And why is that important? Does that have anything to do with the, with, uh, the intensification of conflict in the story, maybe? Jen, what do you think about that? Your hand is up. The 
place is all rabbits go to Africa. The other one. Okay, good. In terms of place, this this story happens in various Warrens, right? Like more than one, including, uh, as Jen j- just said, Ephrafa. Jen, can you think of the names of any of the other Warrens that are important in this story? No. That's okay. We'll come up with them. But but you're exactly right. It happens in Warrens. Christopher, your hand is still up. Any idea what the other Warrens are? Sandalford and the Watership Down Warren. Okay, good. So there's Ephrafa, Sandalford, and there's Watership Down. There's also one more Warren that doesn't have a the name. The Warren of Shining Wires. Yes, yeah, that's the one. exactly. Ooh, I like that name too. Is that is that actually given in the story? I don't remember if they called it that. It was it was <clears throat> Cowslip's Warren, I think, is the way it was usually referred to. We're going to call it the Warren of Shining Wires from now on. It's a Excuse pretty me. descriptive name that you've given it there. <clears throat> I think it would be fun, actually, to talk about these different Warrens. Maybe we can hold off and do this a little bit later. To talk about these different Warrens and what kind of life they represent for the rabbits who live there. Because the differences between them are so profound, are so pronounced, that it almost seems like it's purposeful and intentional on the part of the author. Don't you think, Mrs. A? Oh, I think it must have been. In fact, let's go ahead and have a quick I talk think, about that right now. That was a very good time. Yeah. Let's talk about this, the, these various settings of the story. And this will, by the way, illustrate to you just how important understanding the setting of a story is and understanding how purposeful and intentional the author is in choosing and creating the places where his story happens. So why don't we talk about the various Warrens and let's put them down in chronological order. Let's start with Sandalford, and then we'll mention uh, Shining Wires, and then we'll mention Shining Wired, Shining Wired. and then we'll mention Ephrafa, and since it was finally established last, we'll say Watership Down. What can you tell me about these four different places in this story? Uh, in fact, let me ask a leading question or two. At Sandalford, who is in charge? Who is in charge of the Sandalford Warren? Anybody remember? Alex, your hand just went up. Go ahead. Um, um, well, the Threra, the chief rabbit. Very yes, good. the the Threera, the chief rabbit. Good. And what kind of a leader is he? What kind of government or what kind of rule does he exercise? Have any idea, Alex? Are the rabbits that live there under the Threera? Well, oh, sorry. Go he's ahead. He's a no nonsense rabbit leader. Okay. No nonsense. Okay, that's good. A no-nonsense sort of no person, I suppose. Okay, that's right. Are the rabbits that live there, um, what kind of life do they have? Are they happy there? Or how do they well, respond I to his... Well, I suppose he could say he makes the size of the Say it one more time, Alex. I didn't quite hear you. I want to hear that last comment well, again. they just follow him with no questions whatsoever. He's a good leader in okay. their point of view. Okay. So they follow him. Very good. I wonder. And does anybody um, help him in terms they of. They just leadership? follow the chief rabbit with basically no questions. Okay. And 
Um, is he helped by anyone in terms of leadership? Hmm. Let's have a couple more comments on that question. Who, how is, how is leadership set up in the Sandalford Warren? Um, let's see, Elena, your hand is up. Go ahead. Can you hear us, Elena? I think we're getting some background noise there. Uh, let's see. What about you, Catherine? Talk to me a little bit more about the Sandalford Warren. What kind of a society is there? Catherine, I think you've muted yourself. Click your microphone one more time, Catherine, if you'd like to speak. There you go. Go ahead, Catherine. Oh, good. In Stanford Warren, the ordinary rabbits get picked on and the others. Okay, so so how would you describe the, the life that you live at the Sandalford Warren? Not fun. Okay, not, not fun. fun. Okay. The big guys pick on the little guys. Yeah. And who are the big guys? Are you talking about just big in terms of their size or big in terms of their position and their role? Christopher, what do you think about that? Where the big guys pick on the little guys. What does big and little mean? The position, like the big ones are like the outer mm -hmm. and the small ones are the outers. Okay. Good. Now, if you had to compare the um, little society and government of Sandalford to a society and government in our world, um, what kind of a society do you think that Sandalford is representing? Any idea? You got a big guy ruling, surrounded uh, by a bunch a of little guys. A democratic society? A what kind? Say that again. A democratic. Do you think it's a democratic a, society? I'm, I want to. I want you to think about the initial. A democratic scene. society. Okay, and think a little bit about Fiverr, though, in the original scenes of the story, the initial scenes of the story, when he goes in to speak to the three era, and says, "You know, there's this horrible thing coming. I've seen it. We should all be really afraid." And he's kind of laughed out of the Ausla and silenced. Is there any kind of a vote? Is everyone alerted? That's what I would expect in a democracy. Do you see that happening in Sandalford? No. No, that's not what happens. What does happen? No. What happens instead? He is ignored. He is ignored. He's ignored. He is. Why is he ignored? Because they don't believe him. Okay. They're not particularly concerned. Is that the only reason? Is there any other reason given in the story for why he's ignored? Because they're content with what they have. They've got a big warren and they've got lots of food. Yes. They have a big warren. They have lots of food. And I think at one point, the three of us says it would be too much trouble to try to move everyone. It would be difficult with the female rabbits who are having young to actually get them to move along what much too much trouble for what would be the reward right and everybody seems to be very satisfied especially those in the ausla 
the big guys and the three era. And so Fiverr's kind of shut up and shushed and moved along. Now, if it's not a democratic society that we're looking at, what does this look like? What kind of society are we looking at here? Ben suggests more of a monarchy. Okay. With a king at the top who's got his nobles or his his, his people that sort of his court that sort of does his bidding and is particularly interested in keeping things the way they are. Good. Good. I think that's very um, insightful. Okay, good. Let's compare that to the one that, that the other student called the Shining Wires. That was Christopher. Nice. I like that. The Warren of the Shining Wires. Otherwise known as Cowslips Warren. Yes. Cowslips Warren. Right. How does this Warren compare to Sandalford? And Michael, your hand is up now. Let's hear uh, what you think about Shining Wires Warren. Okay. So Shining Wires Warren made me think of almost like they're in slavery in a way. What kind of slavery? What do you mean by that? Well, kind of like a, a slave to their wants, in a way. Because they were fine with all the food and the safety that they are getting. And it was just, they weren't asking questions. They are just kind of not um, asking a question they should have made. They are just staying as, just made me think of slaves. And what, what um, why were they not asking any questions? Did you ever think, do you ever wonder why it is that they didn't ask questions and what was it that there they were not asking questions about questions that they weren't to ask? Yeah. Like the subject was changed every time they asked the question where, right? Where was the question they weren't supposed to ask? Yeah. Uh, Cambria, your hand is up. Give us a thought on that. What, what was the issue at the, at the Warren of the shining wires? I think that they were more concerned about not where the food was coming from or like what was happening to them, but more of like they were scared to ask why, because they didn't, I think in the back of their mind, that animal instinct made them kind of unsure, but they were getting what they needed and they were happy. So they didn't really care. What were they getting when you say they were getting what they needed? What were they getting? They were provided, uh, well, safety because the man obviously killed all the, threats and like the wildlife that were going to come eat them. Like if they were in the wild normally. Okay. So they weren't, they weren't worried. I mean, they weren't scared or frightened to go out into like the open because they knew that nothing was around them that could kill them. Yes. And no Elil. Great. So no Elil, which is the rabbit word for threats, right? No Elil. What else were they getting Cambria? Food. They were getting, the farmer would put out the, um, like all the compost and stuff that he wasn't using in this part of like the open area so that they could just come and take food whenever they wanted. So plenty of good food, right? And you notice how the rabbits in that warren are sleek and fat and healthy, right? Yeah. Okay. And then what kind of things did they uh, have time to do since they weren't having to go find food and protect themselves from Elil? They were making like structures of some sort. Like I actually can't hold on. Because wasn't I think Hazel, Hazel when he first came to them, him and Fiverr, weren't they concerned about like the man-made structures that they had found? Yeah, but they weren't like, man-made. They were rabbit-made. They were actually yeah. these rabbits were engaged in creating artwork 
pictures in the wall with pictures rocks. in the wall with rocks so they right? had lots and lots of free time and didn't they write, write songs too yeah they were oh, actually yeah. that might be fiverr you know how he's like this he's not really esp but he's like this he can tell what he's like he can tell what's going to happen before it happens there was another guy in that warrant i can't remember his name but he made hazel feel really uncomfortable because he was quoting poetry and stuff and it was better than fiverr's but I think it made him uncomfortable because he didn't think that Rabbit should be able to do that. Yeah, his name was Silverweed. Do, do you remember the poetry? In fact, one of his poems that was turned into a song, um, he recited it while the rabbits were there in the warren. Yes. And tell me about that poem. Anybody remember the Silverweed's poem? It's kind of a, a, a specific detail from the story, but if you remember it, this is a good time to describe it to us because it illustrates the point of the shining wires warren pretty well jen your hand is still up uh go ahead and unmute yourself and tell us about that poem if you can remember i don't remember anything about the poem but i think the rabbits of the shining wires were kind of being deceitful and what do you mean by that like they were deceiving hazel's group Deceiving them in what way and to what end? Why? They were deceiving them because they wanted them to stay there. Yes. And why would it have been necessary for them to deceive them in order to get them to stay there? If they found out that about the wires that were that the man was putting there. And why would... why was it that they weren't upfront about these wires? And why why would they have wanted them? To stay. I think they wanted them to stay because they wanted them so that they could have their warren continue for longer. Mm. Okay. That's a, that's a good answer. I think that's kind of a difficult question, Mrs. A. What are you driving at there? Well, I'm just thinking about probabilities, right? Periodically, somebody disappears, and the more rabbits there are there the less likely that it'll be you that disappears. Ah, uh, because this is what's going on at the Warren of the Shining Wires that nobody really talks about. Every once in a while, somebody disappears. And I think you're right to say that they were being very deceitful because they didn't want them to know that there was a threat that they might be the one that disappears, right? And listen to Silverweed's song. The wind is blowing, blowing over the grass. It shakes the willow catkins. The leaves shine silver. Where are you going, wind? Far, far away over the hills, over the edge of the world. Take me with you, wind, high over the sky. I will go with you. I will be rabbit of the wind. Into the sky, the feathery sky and the rabbit. The stream is running, running over the gravel. Through the brookline, the king cups, the blue and gold of spring. Where are you going, stream? Far, far away beyond the heather, sliding away all night. Take me with you, stream, away in the starlight. I will go with you. I will be rabbit of the stream, down through the water, the green water, and the rabbit. In autumn, the leaves come blowing yellow and brown. They rustle in the ditches. They tug and hang on the hedge. Where are you going, leaves? Far, far away into the earth we go with the rain and the berries. Take me, leaves. Oh, take me on your dark journey. I will go with you. 
I will be rabbit of the leaves in the deep places of the earth, the earth and the rabbit. Frith lies in the evening sky. The clouds are red about him. I'm here, Lord Frith. I am running through the long grass. Oh, take me with you, dropping behind the woods, far away to the heart of light, the silence. For I am ready to give you my breath, my life, the shining circle of the sun, the sun and the rabbit. Now, what is the tone of that poem? And what is the subject matter of that poem? What do you guys think? What's the tone of that poem? Michael says escape. Escape. Okay, that's an idea. How about some other ideas? Morgan says to be ready for death, which may come to any at any time. Yes, the subject matter of this poem is death, isn't it? And the idea that the, the poet or the singer is suggesting is that death is not something to be avoided. That death but, is a friend. That we, we actually run to meet death, right? How does Fiverr respond to this music? Anybody remember? Somebody alluded to that a minute ago. Yeah, Michael, that's right. He freaks out. Fiverr, as he listened, had shown a mixture of intense absorption and incredulous horror. At one and the same time, he seemed to accept every word and yet to be stricken with fear. Once he drew in his breath as though startled to recognize his own half-known thoughts. And when the poem was ended, he seemed to be struggling to come to himself. He bared his teeth and licked his lips, so Blackberry had, as Blackberry had done before the dead hedgehog on the road. The dead hedgehog. Basically, he's in the presence of death, right? Yeah. And he sees it because he's sensitive, right? So this is a place where the attitude of the rabbits towards death is very unnatural. Yeah. In fact, they're being lulled through songs and poetry and the emphasis of art in their society, which additionally is very unnatural for rabbits. It's not rabbit-like. Because rabbits don't create art. Right. Right? They're being lulled into this sense of security, but it's a very false security, right? So you could say that they pay for their luxury with death? loss of freedom. Yeah. Well, not just loss of freedom, death. loss of life. Yeah. Okay, good. And as long as it's not their life that's lost, they're all willing to be quiet about it. Yes. They're playing the, um, the laws of probability. Right. It's okay. If other people die, I remain sleek. But it's interesting that, that, uh, even though they seem to live a life of luxury, they're not free no, because they, they are, they are basically pet rabbits. They are that in, you know, what's really happening in the world of men here is the farmer figures out he's got a warren of rabbits that he can raise for food mm-hmm. and doesn't have to go hunting rabbits. He can have them come live in his yard. Exactly. So he propagates them himself. And anytime he wants rabbit stew, he just goes and snares one. Picks a few off. All right. Exactly. Okay, good. Now, and what kind of a society yeah, does what that, might that seem to suggest? What kind of a society, societies that exist in the world today seem to you to look like the warren of the shining wires? Ben says communism, perhaps, which promises to all a bountiful living, but takes away freedom at some level. Or at least socialism. You could say that the modern welfare state does that to a degree by promising economic prosperity for all. But never suggesting where it's coming but from. But never suggesting where it's coming from, that the, the source of 
economic prosperity is hidden. And as long as we're the ones benefiting from it, we don't really care where it comes from or what the cost is. So you can see these, you can see the author really intentionally mirroring different social constructs, right? Different kinds of communities. Yeah. Okay. Let's look at Ephrafa. Ephrafa. Or Ephrafa. I call it Ephrafa. And by the way, we'll call it Ephrafa. uh, Catherine, your hand has gone up a couple of times and I haven't gotten to call on you. So please go ahead and keep putting it up if you have something to say and we'll jump you to the front of the line. Um, Ephrafa, who is, who is in charge in Ephrafa and what sort of warren is that? Michael, go ahead. Uh, it was like General Woundwort was the leader of Ephrafa. Yeah, what a great name, right? Yeah, awesome name. General Woundwort. Okay, good. And what sort of society does he does he lead there, Michael? Uh, almost like a mix between tyranny and communism. Okay. Okay, good. Um, what we'd probably say is he's a totalitarian dictator. Totalitarian meaning a guy who's in complete and total control of every aspect of the lives of his subjects. That's a fair assessment, wouldn't you say? How does that play out in Ephrafa? Yeah, what's it look like in Ephrafa? Ethan, I don't think we've heard from you yet. Go ahead, Ethan. I think that that's total control. Okay. And he leads by fear almost. He doesn't want anyone else to oppose his dictatorship. So he kind of secretly takes out any opposition. Yeah. Perfect. Very good. That's perfect. Thank you, Ethan. Yeah, this is a totalitarian dictatorship where the 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 general rules by fear doesn't allow anyone to oppose his rule. Give us some specific examples. Uh, Christopher, can you think of some specific examples in Ephrafa of this sort of rule? The uh, council police, the Auslafa. Yeah, very good. It's like secret police. Or not so secret. Yeah. It's sort of a police state, isn't it? They, in order to maintain that kind of control over every aspect of the rabbit's lives, they need a police force. And um, it's composed of really large rabbits who force the other rabbits to do their will. Mm-hmm. And as, uh, as Beth chats, they re- he uh, restricts when they can go and eat. He restricts when they can leave the warren and go outside. They all have shifts that they have to, that they have to obey. Every aspect of the daily life of every rabbit is controlled and ruled. So there's absolutely no freedom of movement. Uh, Catherine, your hand is up. Let's try you to see if we can get your audio working. Click your microphone button one time to unmute yourself. There you um, go. Go ahead, I don't Catherine. Have to say. Um, some people took my point. Oh, that's okay. But finally, there's no freedom of speech in Ephraim's Warren. Good. No freedom of speech or of movement either, right? In fact, the rabbits are asked to behave very unnaturally. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, good. Good comment, Catherine. Morgan also chats that the humiliation of Blackavar is an example of this uh, kind of government. And Morgan, I wonder if you wouldn't mind raising your hand and explaining what you mean. There's no obligation, of course, but if you'd like to, this would be a good time. Blackavar's humiliation is an example. Wait a minute, let's put it this way. Blackavar's humiliation as an example to the other rabbits is in itself an example of what we're talking about. Yeah, very good. Allie, your hand is up. Go ahead, Allie, if I can unmute you here. There we go. Can you hear us, Allie? Uh, it's an example to the other rabbit, not to uh, try to run away or else they'll pay for it. Good. So to keep them from running away. Here's an interesting point that you bring up, Allie. Um, Ephrafa is a society where you have to keep people home by force. You have to keep them from leaving by force. So nobody wants to go there. Everybody wants to leave. And General Woundwart has to prevent them from leaving by force. Why did the does want to leave? Uh, before we get there, ben, ben says, like the Berlin Wall. Exactly. Yeah, if you know your 20th century history, uh, the 20th century is littered with examples of totalitarian governments that end up having to build walls around their countries to keep people in, to keep them from emigrating by force, if necessary. Michael says the the does ran, wanted to run because there wasn't enough space or males. That's right. What was the effect of there not being enough space, of the overcrowding on the does? Do you remember? Oh, let's take a let's take a, a hand on that one. Uh, let's see. Um, Cambria, go ahead. Uh, click your button once to unmute yourself. By the way, guys, you don't have to mute yourselves. I've got you all muted until it's your turn to talk. So go ahead, Cambria. The does, with, so if they got pregnant by one of the other rabbits, they were so overcrowded and there wasn't, like it was all probably stressful for them. So they'd eat their own kids sort of thing. Yeah. They were reabsorbing their Yeah, litters. they were abs absorbing the litters before they delivered them, mm -hmm. right? Right, very good. Exactly. So a kind of a symbol of the difficulty that that side society represented. So also a lot of death imagery in that particular place. It's unnatural, just like the silver wire warren, yeah, the cast right. lips warren, but it's almost to a greater degree, right? Yeah. Because in silver we or in a cowslips warren and the silver wire warren, they're controlling, but through. Um, subtleties mm, exactly right it's subtle they're lulled into slavery yes and, and yes. in wound warts were and they're just forced into it exactly yeah conscripted labor and right you know kind of like work gangs and well yeah marks i, I dare you to try and leave if exactly. if you leave we're going to kill you yes whereas in the cowslips war and it was don't leave it's so wonderful here exactly yeah okay so now let's look at watership down okay watership down Tell us about that one. Is it a contrast to these other three Warrens or is it more of the same? What's the story, Jen? We've kind of Oops, begun see. with each one of the, the, the Warrens discussing the Warrens by talking about who's in charge. Let's of, do that. Of the Warrens. So who's I actually in charge of Watership Down? meant to unmute Jen, but I unmuted Ethan instead. Go ahead, Ethan. 
Watership Down seems like a bit of a democracy to me. Everybody has a say over okay. what's going to happen, but ultimately it's up to okay. one person. Good. Are there leaders in Watership Down? Yes. Well, Hazel is the chief rabbit, I guess. Okay. And how does he compare to the other chief rabbits that we've encountered? He kind of rules by... How do I say this? I, go ahead and take your time because it's. A, I think you're about to say an important idea. How does Hazel lead or how does Hazel rule? He takes everybody's idea and compromises everyone to make everybody else happy. Yes, very good, yeah. Ethan. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Very unlike Woundwort, who is um, intimidated by other people's ideas and silences people that might have a different idea than he does. I like Aiden's comment in the chat. He rules by common consent. Yes, very good. He doesn't just listen to the advice of others. He actually courts the advice of others. He asks others. Why is that? Why is that? Is he not threatened by the other rabbits in the warren? Christopher? Let's see. If that, yeah, there you go. Christopher, what do you think? Is is uh, is Hazel not threatened? Why does he... Why does he listen to or even ask for advice from others? He he asks for advice from others so that he can so he can have new ideas that they can and he, he so they so they can prove the ideas. Yeah, he's looking for new ideas. So, so they can have a say in things. Okay, good. And also, doesn't he acknowledge, doesn't Hazel admit that he doesn't have every answer to every problem? Yes, he does. I How think... does Hazel look? Describe Hazel physically in comparison with, say, General Woundward. Or even Bigwig. Christopher, you're still on. How does Hazel he's a, look? He's, he's a lot. He, he's a lot smaller than the other generals, the other leaders like Wig and General Woodward. He's a small. He's he's got a less heavier build. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, not as physically impressive, I would say. Not as Mrs. physically a. impressive. Not as not as um, large physically. Not as imposing a specimen mm -hmm. as the other um, leaders were. Um, but these other rabbits in his warren actually consent to his leadership. What does that tell you about the kind of leader that Hazel is, and the kind of leader that this particular society needs? How does the society run? Linus says he uses his brains, and okay. I think that's certainly true. But I think there's something else that Hazel does that we have several examples of in the story that Hazel is constantly looking to his companions to see what their particular gifts are. Because he's not the smartest rabbit. I think Blackberry's the smartest Blackberry's one. Blackberry's the smart one. Bigwig is the strong one. Fiverr is the prescient one, the one who's the, the seer, the, seer, the prophet, the one who can tell what's coming next. 
Hazel doesn't have any of those skills, really, more than anybody else. Aiden says he values their different skills, and that's definitely true. He does value their skills. He sees that their society will be bettered by utilizing what they're each best at. He kind of singles them out for their gifts and abilities and brings them to the entire community. He's kind of more of an organizer than anything. Okay, that's one thing that distinguishes him as a leader from Woundwart and the others that we've seen. Anything else that you noticed about him that makes him stand out um, from the other leaders? Catherine, what do you think? Anything else you notice about Hazel that you'd like to share? Well, I personally agree. And Hazel is very good at leadership and he cooperates all the other rabbits' skills so that they can create a good functioning society. Yeah, I agree with that. He, you don't see Hazel grasping for his position of authority. And In fact, how does he become the leader? I don't remember the specific details. You know, he just looks up and everyone's following him. Yeah. Nathan says he leads from the front. He doesn't have, ask anyone to take any danger that he wouldn't do himself. Very good observation. Yeah, he goes to all kinds of personal risk in, in the story. The whole gambit with the dog and the gambit with the car and the gambit with the, the does that they need to go get. In the end, Hazel's leadership is instrumental in creating a particular kind of society on Watership Down. What kind of society is it? And how is it different from those on uh, in the Cowslip Warren or in Ephrafa or in Sandalford? What kind of society? How would you describe life on Watership Down? Jen, your hand is up. Go ahead. I think life in Watership Down is a beautiful and wonderful life. And in what specific ways is it beautiful and wonderful? Is it even beautiful and wonderful in bad weather, for example? It seems yes, because there's no really oppression other Good. than the Elio. Good. And other than just natural enemies, the Elil. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's free of oppression. What does that mean? What does it mean to be free of oppression? Nathan, weigh in on this topic. What kind of life are we talking about here at Watership Down? And you'll have to um, unmute yourself by pressing the microphone. There you go. Being free of oppression means that the rabbits um, follow his leadership, but they don't necessarily have to do what he says. Yes. Like, Near the end, he actually encourages some of them to like go make a new society or have freedom. He encourages freedom, unlike Wound War. Good. So it's free of oppression in the sense that, as Nathan suggests, you can do what you want. You can follow whom you want. You can leave if you want. You can be free to act like a rabbit. You can act like a rabbit. You can do what rabbits do. There is no external coercion in this life. An interesting contrast to life in Sandalford, to life at the Cowslip Warren, and to life in Ephrafa. Now, this is a real kind of a 
a uh, summary of the various settings that the story takes place in. And I think you can see that even if we haven't even talked about the plot yet, we haven't even talked about the characters all that much. We've just talked about setting and already we can see that this is a story, at least at some level, about different kinds of societies and how they run and even different kinds of leaders what makes a good one mm-hmm. what, what makes, makes a, a good, good leader society. what makes what a good makes leader? a good society those questions are all embedded just in the settings of the story a pretty powerful idea and adams basically accomplishes this through his little journey motif right yeah. because as the rabbits leave one warren and journey to another one, they encounter these different societies. They learn from each one, get ideas, and take them back to the creation of their own little society. Right. And in the end, choose to um, to model their little honeycomb warren after what they saw in Cowslip's warren, right? That large room That's underground. Right. Yep. So they've actually picked and chosen various things that they've seen in different places mm-hmm. and thrown out the bad and kept what they thought was good and beneficial to the community. And it's all done through this consent of the governed, right? Yeah. Mutual consent. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's jump ahead and let's start talking about the, um, uh, the plot of the story. Cause I think we've touched on the characters just a little bit. And if we were going to go and do a, a longer treatment, we might stop and, and do characters separately, but I think we'll continue talking about them as we go through the plot. Is that fair, Mrs. A? That's fair. If we were going to spend a little more time on this today, I would want to get a little brief working list of the characters. But because we're suffering from time limitations, I think we should scoot along. Okay, well, let's at least ask this one question about the about the characters in the story. Who is the protagonist? Who is the main character in the story? In other words, what character is the story really at the base level? Who is it about? We've already got a couple of suggestions rolling in. Audra says Hazel. Devin and KL say Hazel. Michael says Hazel. Nathan says Hazel. Ada says Fiverr. And some people are saying Hazel and Fiverr are the joint protagonists in the story. Okay, let me ask the question this way. Put yourself in the world of Watership Down. Put yourself in the story. Who are you rooting for? Ben says Bigwig. well the the votes are overwhelmingly for hazel but aiden just uh, chatted something that i think we should consider the group as a whole and michael backs him up hazel's group don't you think this is a this is a story about a group of rabbits going for something and you identify with the group as much as you identify with any one. I mean, it almost, it's like what you said, Mrs. A, about the kind of leader she, uh, that Hazel is. Mm-hmm. He's not a leader out for his own reputation. He's actually trying to make a group where everybody contributes their own thing. Maybe the group as a whole is the protagonist of this story. But in so much as there is a leader of the group, I think Hazel and Fiverr kind of rise to the surface as protagonists in the story. And they are the, the first rabbits that we meet. That's very true. Two rabbits, we're told. Um, see, in the green half light at the mouth of one of these holes, two rabbits were sitting together side by side. At length, the larger of the two came out, slipped along the bank under cover of the brambles, and so down into the ditch and up into the field. A few moments later, the other followed. And then we begin to learn about Fiverr's horrors and how that motivates Hazel, his brother, to do something. And also structurally, the last scene in the story is Hazel getting the call of the black rabbit Mm -hmm. in death. And so the story ends with begins with Hazel's journey and ends with Hazel's death. And so you could say 
that he's sort of the, 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 he has the title of protagonist, but I like the idea that this, um, as Nathan just chatted, the group does make sense. They're proud of not losing any of their number. Everyone is important. And then Michael chats, no one does anything alone in this story. It's always a group effort. That's absolutely true. And they're, they depend on each other. And given the fact that the author seems to be making this statement about societies in his use of setting, I think it's fitting that there's a little society that's the protagonist in this story. Absolutely. Well, whether it's a single rabbit, Hazel, or a duo, Hazel and Fiverr, or the whole group, let's ask the follow-up question. What does the protagonist want? What does the protagonist in this story want the most? Beth says to, to find a free and safe Warren. Safety, Michael says. Audra says... Hazel wants to keep his group group safe. Safety and freedom. To find a free and safe Warren. They only leave Sandalford because they're trying to be free of the coming doom that Fiverr mentions. Right? They leave Cowslip's Warren in order to be free of the oppression of the man. They leave Ephrafa to be free of the oppression of Woundwort. They're looking for freedom and Mm -hmm. safety at the same time. Well, they aren't always they aren't all in Ephrafa. No, but they they try and get free of its clutches. Right. Okay, um, so what are the obstacles to the safety and freedom that they encounter? Or as we always say, why can't they have it? That thing that they want. Michael says, Elil. Okay. Let's make a list. Elil. There's Elil. What else? What else can't what else is an obstacle to getting what they want, which is a life of safety and Michael freedom? Michael says, man. Okay. Yeah, at Cla- Cowslip's Warren, the, the Warren of Shining Wires, that's certainly true. Mm-hmm. Morgan says, no does. Yes, they need other rabbits. They got to have does or else no babies or else no, and society. Then no society, right? Okay, there's um, there's Woundwort, mm-hmm. there's Woundwort, who becomes the the personal protagonist in the second half of the story, right? There's the three Ra that chases them as they're leaving in the beginning of the story too, his, his little Ausla. Uh, that's true. So they're, yeah, they're beset by the leaders of the other Warrens. Um, Aiden says, Elil encompasses all threats, doesn't it? And I think, Aiden, that Elil is the word in Richard Adams' rabbit lexicon that actually means natural enemies like stoats and weasels. Yeah, predators. So Elil means animals that are going to eat you. Other obstacles might, you know, you probably would want to list the horror at Sandalford that drives them away from the Warren to begin with and... Maybe the Sandalford, Ausla, and Thura's unbelief. That's an obstacle. Oh, yeah. Unbelief. People that don't believe that the danger is coming. And that afterwards continue to suspect Fiverr. Like, for example, Bigwig, um, when he is in Cowslip's Warren, is irritated by Fiverr's horrors. Mm. And wishes he'd just be happy because he wants to stay there. Mm. It's not until he himself... Um, runs into a shining wire mm-hmm. that he begins to respect Fiverr's visions. Yeah. Also, um, uh, Ethan says the rough and depressing terrain, the fact that this is a journey through difficulty, mm-hmm. natural difficulty. It's hard to travel when you're a rabbit this far. And... Oh, absolutely. Because they're, they're tentative little creatures. They're right. scared of everything. In fact, what's the word he created? Tharn. <laughs> Tharn is kind of their enemy, like their own selves, their own When they fears. get freaked out and go catatonic. Yes. I'm going to put that in. 
Going Tharn is <laughs> that. definite. That's going to creep into our family. I'm going to say that for, for sure. sure. Hey, don't go Tharn on me. Keep your wits about you, for goodness sakes. Yeah, those are great. Okay. So let's chart the plot of this story as a answer to the protagonist wanting safety and freedom, but overcoming these obstacles in order to get it. So if we go up to the plot chart. If we go up to the plot chart. Let's summarize the exposition of the story in a sentence. Oh, yeah. Um, By the way, just for those of you who have never been in one of our classes before, the exposition of the plot is the part in early on in the plot where the author sort of gives you a the lay of the land, tells you who's in the story, what their what their situation is, describes the relationships between them, and sort of sets the stage. And presents an initial conflict. For the coming conflict. Yeah. Exactly right. So how would you summarize that part of the story in a sentence? Jen has her ah, hand up. Jen. Very good. Go ahead. Fiverr and Hazel find the whiteboard and kind of seeing the whiteboard, Fiverr gets the feeling that something's going to happen to the warrant. Okay. And so let's just summarize. Fiverr and Hazel warn Sandalford of coming disaster. They flee. And let's see, should we... Should we alter the sentence, add to it? They flee with a group of friends. Could we change that sentence somehow to make it better? No, I'm not going to say bunnies instead of friends, Aiden, (laughs) but thank you for the suggestion. This is not a story about bunnies. (laughs) I think we all can agree on that now, right? I mean, we've talked about communism, for goodness sakes. Uh, misfit friends. That's not a bad suggestion, well, Ethan. Not too bad. Although bigwig seems to fit in pretty well. Misfits with one another, I suppose. In search of a new Warren where they can live in freedom and safety. Nice. Okay, good. This is a great example of an summary of the exposition of the story. Because you get going, right? The plot is actually underway. We've got Fiverr and Hazel actually fleeing, and the group is is composed, and they're on after a goal. Exactly. Now, let's move to the rising action part of the story, and let's summarize the kinds of things that happen to them on their journey. And this is a plot that's filled with detail. So I'm actually going to make this rising action section a little bigger and have you guys start telling me what to put in it. So. Maybe since generally speaking, the way authors create story and move it along is through the, um, uh, by introducing conflict, Uh we could just name the conflicts that push the story along. Okay. So good the first idea. conflict is the story, the the board that they see that causes Fiverr's horrors and the obvious rejection of the issue by the three row. Okay. So they figure they're on their own. They got to get out of Dodge. Off they go. Right. Actually, that goes in the exposition. That's the exposition, right? Yeah. So what's the next um, 
element the next of element conflict of or danger that they encounter. Nathan says crossing the river. Okay, crossing the river. Why? Why are they trying to cross the river? They're getting out of Sandalford. And there's a dog in the woods, right? Remember the dog in the woods? Mm-hmm. So we've got the Sandalford Ausla hunting them and a dog in the woods. So they got to cross that river. Then they all go Tharn in the bushes <laughs> on the other side. So there's fear. Going Tharn. Fear of the journey. We could probably list that. Then what? Uh, Cowslip's Warren. Cowslip's Warren. Good. Cowslip in the shining wire and a man with a gun. Jen, your hand is up. Contribute. Go ahead. In Cowslip's Warren, they find out that it's dangerous because um, Bigwig almost gets killed in one of the shining wires. Yes. Good. In fact, uh, let me see. Okay, Cowslip's Warren saving Bigwig. And and uh, good job, Jen. I'm going to add that. And then also um, a chat that I want to mention. Nathan says, don't forget that they made a boat when they were crossing the river. And so they saved Pipkin, who went completely tharn, I think, didn't he? Yes. And that becomes significant later in the story because it's uh, one of the vehicle. It's the vehicle to get out of Africa. They figured out boats early on in the right. river and then they used it later. Exactly. And it actually completely confounded Woundwart. Exactly. Because he said, we weren't, yeah, he didn't know anything about boats. He never anything like that in his life. Yeah. Okay, so um, so we've got Cowslips Warren, and they save Bigwig, who who almost was uh, was was snared. And what was the uh, Mrs. A? You mentioned a minute ago that was kind of a big um, turning point in Bigwig's own life. Yes, because up until this point, Bigwig obeyed the biggest guy, the head honcho guy, and Fiverr was kind of a, a small. He was the the runt of the litter, basically. Right. And he had these crazy visions and dreams, and Bigwig wasn't really sure that he bought into all that. But he was just tired of life in the Owsley at Sandalford and thought moving on sounded like a good idea because there wasn't any opportunity for him exactly so here they find another warren it seems to be pretty nice and he wants to stay there and he's just annoyed by this little pipsqueak right good okay but he learns to respect him in this particular situation so after cowslip's warren they actually do what what happens next somebody give me a give me a hint ethan says i was so mad i thought he was gonna die in that snare mm-hmm. <laughs> Michael says something about cars. Oh, I talked about hoo-doo-doo. <laughs> run, Fiverr, run! Don't get hit by a hoo-doo-doo. Oh, my gosh. No, Mrs. A. The hoo-doo-doo. Yes, Mr. A. And then um, Alex says, finding Captain Holly and Bluebell. Alex, I can't remember the specific details there. Oh, you don't remember that How did scene? Captain Holly and Bluebell come to join them? Oh, yes, I do. Was, weren't Captain Holly and Bluebell from Sandalford? Yes. And they come. Yeah, yeah. Holly was a disaster and Bluebell was trying to move him along by telling him funny jokes and stuff. Yes. Keeping his spirits up. Because they had been, they had actually stayed behind and the doom of Sandalford descended upon them. Right. And remember, it's after the other rabbits get away from the, um, the Shining Wires Warren. Cowslip's Warren. Cowslip's Warren. And they've made it into the field where they're going to. Um, build watership down right right but they're in the ditch and they begin to hear something and they thought it was as um bigwig thinks it's the ghost the yeah, black as rabbit Nathan of inlay, says, right? yeah they thought it was the black rabbit of inlay and so what happens do you guys remember this scene it's pretty awesome oh i remember it now i'm getting goosebumps yes that's exactly right nathan hazel jumps out instead of bigwig and that causes bigwig to respect hazel more he says something to the effect later 
you don't think that I remember, but you jumped out into that ditch and you put yourself out there instead of me is what you did. And what they found when they got there was no black rabbit inlay. But, but Hazel they found, didn't know that. Exactly. They found Captain Holly and Bluebell. And so Hazel is never, is we said this before, he's never getting place for himself. He's never trying to gain honor, but he's always taking the risk. Always taking the risks. So there's that. That's one thing that's significant about that scene. There's another thing that's very significant about Holly and Bluebell um, joining the group. What is it? Tell us, Mrs. A. I got to know what you're thinking. You guys remember? When he comes back, he basically validates oh, yeah. Fiverr's vision and says it was just as he said. Right. Catherine says that. Everyone Holly tells the dead. horror story, story of Sandalford. Fiverr was right. Right. So now there's validation. There's, there's something... Um, basically stamping Fiverr as a true prophet because his prophecies actually come true. Yeah. <laughs> and it's happened twice now. He didn't like the Sandalford Warren because of the horrors that were coming. He didn't like Cowslip's Warren because it was unnatural. And so now the other rabbits are starting to basically um, recognize Fiverr's gift as a seer and give him place in the community. Just like they recognized Blackberry's gift as a maker of things and they give him place in the community. Just like they recognize Hazel's gift as an administrator and they give him place in the community. Exactly. Everybody earns his spot by his, his own personality and gifts. His gifts make room for him. So they, Holly and Bluebell join the group and then what's what's the next stop on their journey? They're out of Cowslips Warren. They've managed to add some people. Uh, Christopher, your hand just went up. Tell us what's next in this story. Um, they try and get some rabbits from the farm. Okay, uh, so they're yes. not in a farm raid. But first they find Watership Down, don't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they okay. start to settle down and they realize that they need does for the digging and does for propagation and all that sort of thing. So let's say doe raids on Nuthanger Farm. Um, Christopher, care to tell us some details about how that goes? Well, Hazel and Pipkin go to Nuthanger Farm, and Hazel, and then they come back with Bigwig, and Bigwig gnaws through the latch. But there's a, a cat, and the cat wakes the dog, and so they all run. But Hazel gets hit in the leg by a shotgun bullet. Very good. So Hazel again goes to great risk to get the to get does. Do they manage to get the does? Yes, they do. Okay, excellent. They get two does. Okay, so I'm going to summarize that the way I have. They find Watership Down. There's doe raids on Nuthanger Farm. And then uh, we should also mention that Kihar joins them, right? Yes, which is another um, nod to Hazel's wise leadership. Before we go on to that, though... I think that raid on Nuthanger Farm happens, it's concurrent with um, Colonel Holly going out to scout Ephrafa, right? Oh, Remember yeah, that? that's right. And Hazel kind of gets a little bee in his bonnet and thinks he's going to make them respect him too, and he's going to lead this raid on Nuthanger Farm. Oh, you're right. right. Which I think really does develop his character so that he's not so flat. Don't you think, Mr. A? I do, but I want to hear you explain it a little bit. What well, do you mean I by mean, that? He wasn't perfect. Yeah, yeah. You know, he because really some... in this in this instance, he he did sort of try and seek his own place, a didn't he? A little bit. You know, yeah. he was doing it for the good of the community and everything. They needed dose, but he definitely was hoping that he'd look good too. He'd get the credit and that for it. Captain Holly wouldn't come back and. 
get all the credit and all the aplomb. And you could see a little self-seeking there. Yeah. And look what it got him. Nearly cost him his life. Yeah. In fact, Fiverr, again, his worth and value is proven when he sees him. Basically, he sees in his mind's eye in a dream his brother lying in a ditch. As Audra just reminds us, yeah, Fiverr warns Hazel to stay away from Nuthanger Farm, but he wanted the respect. Yeah, well done, Audra. That's exactly right. Yeah, and eventually then Fiverr goes and finds him and brings him home. Uh, Morgan also notices something. If Holly fails at Ephrapha, the community will not be demoralized because Holly is not the leader. Holly's not the heart and soul. I mean, there's a sense in which Hazel uh, needs to keep himself safe because... They're, they hope in him a little bit. Yeah. As a matter of fact, Holly's chosen because um, they could sacrifice him, essentially. Right. right. They they all agree that Hazel should not be the one to go because they can't do without him. Yeah. Interesting. And he himself agrees that that's true. So they send Holly along and Holly does in fact fail. He comes back with information, but not with does. Yeah. Kihar also joins them in this first episode at Watership Down. This uh, bird that they befriend. And help as he his wing has been broken. And right. And there's great opposition to Hazel's decision to let him stay around. Because it's unnatural for the beasts to make friends with one another. But he does this more than once, Hazel does. Because yeah. remember the mouse in the field as well? Yes, absolutely. And that mouse becomes just as significant as Kihar. Kihar pays them back by scouting for them, doing the work that would have taken them much too and long. And more than to that, he also plays a major role in the final escape. Yeah, he certainly does. And the mouse then, um, that, that's rescued from the field... Um, he becomes an informer in the end. He informs them that Woundwort's coming with his men, which takes away the surprise attack element from Woundwort. I have a hard time not seeing all these details as fitting into this grand interpretation of everybody's got a part to play if you give them the freedom to be themselves. Yeah. It seems like that's what's going on here I all mean, the time. Really, one of Hazel's greatest qualities as a leader is he's not intimidated or threatened by other people's gifts and abilities. Yeah. He sees them as um, gifts to the community, gifts to him, because he doesn't necessarily have a dog in the fight. Yes. Uh, let me just say in the key are the goal and the mouse. I'll, I won't say join the group. I'll say contribute to the group in their various ways. Now, at some point during the discussion of the rising action of the story, you have to say, the next thing that happens is the climactic moment. And that reminds us that in order for there to be a climactic moment, it's got to resolve a major conflict. There has to be a conflict in the story that's being resolved. And so we're going to say, will the group find freedom and safety in a new Warren as kind of the main conflict in the story? That's what they're after freedom and safety, remember? And but you can't just say that because otherwise the story would be over before they got the does. I don't Freedom think and so. Safety would occur, but there, there wouldn't be sustainability without the does. Okay. Then we're going to have to add the word lasting. There you go. Will the group find lasting freedom and safety in a new Warren? Like it. Okay. So the question is, is the next set of details in the story, the climactic moment of that conflict? Does it resolve that conflict? So what is the next set of details? What's the next set of details? What happens after Kihar and the mouse contribute to the group? Any, any thoughts? Any suggestions? We've got... Okay, Michael says the raid on Ephrapha. Good. Why are they raiding Ephrapha, by the way? 
if I can spell it. To get the dose, to get Michael dose, says. That's right. right. Okay. How? Oh man, I just love this part of the story. How does it how does the raid go down? What's the plan and how does it how does it work its way to a conclusion? Uh Jen and then Christopher. Go ahead, Jen. And then we'll take Ethan and Allie as well. Well they send in Bigwig as like an undercover spy for them. So and he makes friends with one of the does and tells her to get the does that want to come out ready to go. And then at evening Silfle, the big wave finds out that they're not gonna have the Silfle. And that's kinda but he tells the does to get near the exit anyway. And he wants to get Blagavar out of there too. So he tells the guard to bring Blagavar up there. And then when they're up there, he tells them that it's no use that Silfly has been canceled. Good. And then... Keep going. And then when they... He fights the guards of Blagavar. Mm-hmm. And then frees Blagavar, and they all run yes. for That's exactly right. Good, you got it. So it's basically a successful raid, which, by the way, it was planned by Blackberry, the thinking rabbit, which is another example of what we've been talking about. Everybody's contributing. but um, And I like the way that it was just summarized there. Bigwig basically infiltrates Ephrafa, gets a group together, and breaks out and steals away on a boat with Kihar's help. Mm-hmm. Steals away on a boat and also steals away Blackavar, who he thought had been treated inhumanely and cruelly by Woundwart and the Ausla. And so he saves him as well. And wow, isn't that a great ending to the story? Because it's all over because Woundwart doesn't know where they went. Except, Except it's not over, right? We underestimate Woundwart, don't we? What happens next? Allie, go ahead. He, um... He uh, finds them and find he uh, sends a group of rabbits to where he thinks they'll come ashore. And then when they do come ashore there, the rabbits he sent out follow them back to their warren so they knew where they lived. Mm-hmm. So they track them. Good, very good. So he, he Woundwart is never beaten until he's beaten, and he basically finds out where the escapees have gone to and eventually leads an army to Watership Down for a final confrontation. Fabulous. They surround Watership Down, don't they? And what happens there? Nathan, your hand is up. Summarize the next episode of Rising Action. Um, so basically Woundwort, who, who's a, um, he'd make a good leader if he wasn't just so power hungry. He, yeah. he also leads front like Hazel does. I agree. He actually goes down into their tunnels to attack and to try and basically smoke them out himself. Yeah, he does. And 
if the conflict is will the group find lasting freedom and safety in a new war, and then maybe the climax could actually be will Wound War be able to take it away from them when he musters his army. So the climax could be the <clears throat> the confrontation between Wound War's army and Hazel's army at Watership Down. Yeah. Okay, now, um, the let's see, the clash of armies at Watership Down. I'm going to write that in the climax moment because, of course, that's where the that's where this conflict is resolved. But that's a little bit of a general statement. It's actually that describes the whole episode, the whole scene. And there are a couple of moments in that clash that I think are really poignant and really telling and really get right to the heart of some of the other things we've been talking about. Not just will they find safety and freedom, but what makes a good leader and what kind of society are the rabbits really going for? And what's a good life after all? So let's talk about this clash of armies at Watership Down and uh, and how it goes down. What happens up there? Kylie says, Hazel's quick thinking to get the dog and Bigwig's bravery underground save the whole Warren. They certainly mm. do, along with Fiverr. Fiverr seems pretty significant in this moment. It's too. Hazel, Bigwig, and Fiverr. Yeah, it is. Tell me what each of those what each of those rabbits do in this final confrontation. Uh, and I'll, I'll take some hands, Michael, and then Christopher. Go ahead, Michael. Okay, so Bigwig uh, fights uh, Woundwort by uh, he basically found a little ditch inside one of their tunnels and hid there and waited for Woundwort to go under him. Good. Good. He jumps down on him and fights with him. And he's, it's a pretty bad fight. He's bleeding all over. And um, how does that fight affect Woundwort? This is a fabulous scene. Do you remember, do you remember what happens, Michael? Well, uh, Wound, I mean, they go back and forth. And then Woundwort almost, he seems to retreat because he almost seems like he's met his match. Yeah, let's take a look at that scene. It's it's pretty moving. The blood ran over Bigwig's neck and down his foreleg. He watched Woundwort steadily where he crouched on the earth pile, expecting him to leap forward at any moment. He could hear a rabbit moving behind him, but the run was so narrow that he could not have turned even if it had been safe to do so. Everyone all right, he asked. They're all right, replied Holly. Come on, Bigwig. Let me take your place now. You need a rest. Can't, panted Bigwig. You couldn't get past me here. No room. And if I go back, that brutal follow. Next thing you'd know, he'd be loose in the burrows. You leave it to me. I know what I'm doing. It had occurred to Bigwig that in the narrow run, even his dead body would be a considerable obstacle. He's the planning on dying. Mm-hmm, the Afrofans would, neither, would either have to get it out or dig round it, and this would mean more delay. In the burrow behind him, he could hear Bluebell, who was apparently telling the does a story. Good idea, he thought. Keep him happy. More than I could do if I had to sit there. So then El Arreira said to the fox, Fox, you may smell, and fox you may be, but I can tell your fortune in the water. Suddenly Woundwort spoke. Flaley, he said, why do you want to throw your life away? I can send one fresh rabbit after another into this run if I choose. You're too good to be killed. Come back to Afrafa. I promise I'll give you the command of any mark you like. I give you my word. Silfle Haraka Uimbli Ra, replied Bigwig. <laughs> Aha, said the fox. Tell my fortune, eh? And what do you see in the water, my friend? Fat rabbits running through the grass. Yes, yes. Very well, said Woundwort. But remember, Lily, you yourself can stop this nonsense whenever you wish. 
No, replied Elorera. It is not fat rabbits that I see in the water, but swift hounds on the scent, and my enemy flying for his life. Bigwig realized that Woundward also knew that in the run his body would be nearly as great a hindrance, dead as alive. He wants me to come out on my feet, he thought. But it's Inlay, not Ephrafa, that I shall go to from here. Suddenly Woundward leapt forward in a single bound and landed full against Bigwig like a branch falling from a tree. He made no attempt to use his claws. His great weight was pushing chest to chest against Bigwig's. With heads side by side, they bit and snapped at each other's shoulders. Bigwig felt himself sliding slowly backward. He could not resist the tremendous pressure. His back legs with claws extended furrowed the floor of the run as he gave ground. In a few moments, he would be pushed bodily into the burrow behind. Putting his last strength into the effort to remain where he was, he loosed his teeth from Moonwort's shoulder and dropped his head like a cart horse straining at a load. Still, he was slipping. Then... Very gradually, it seemed, the terrible pressure began to slacken. His claws had a hold of the ground. Woundwort, teeth sunk in his back, was snuffling and choking. Though Bigwig did not know it, his earlier blows had torn Woundwort across the nose. His nostrils were full of his own blood, and with jaws closed in Bigwig's fur, he could not draw his breath. A moment more, and he would let go his hold. Bigwig, utterly exhausted, lay where he was. After a few moments, he tried to get up, but a faintness came over him and a feeling of turning over and over in a ditch of leaves. He closed his eyes. There was silence. And then, quite clearly, he heard Fiverr speaking in the long grass. You are closer to death than I. You are closer to death than I. The wire squealed Bigwig. He jerked himself up and opened his eyes. The run was empty. General Woodenwort was gone. And the next thing that we see, we get, we get a little conversation between Woundwort and Vervain, his second-in-command, right? Yeah. In which it becomes very clear to Vervain that Woundwort got the worst of it down there with Bigwig, and he is afraid to go back down. So he sends Vervain in to do his job. And when Vervain goes down to deal with Slaley, he says, Slaley, we've unblocked a run out here. I can bring in enough rabbits to pull down this wall in four places. Why don't you come out? <sighs> Flaley's reply when it came was low and gasping, but perfectly clear. My chief rabbit has told me to defend this run, and until he says otherwise, I shall stay here. His chief rabbit, said Vervain, staring. It had never occurred to Woundward or any of his officers that Flaley was not the chief rabbit of his warren. Yet what he said carried immediate conviction. He was speaking the truth. And if he was not the chief rabbit... Then somewhere close by, there must be another, stronger rabbit, who was. <laughs> a stronger rabbit than Flaley? Where was he? What was he doing at this moment? Woundwort became aware that Thistle was no longer behind him. Where's that young fellow gone, he said to Vervain. And it goes on from there. So this, this seems to be a turning point, not only because of the brute force that Big Wig applies in his fight against Woundwort, but also in his words the words that carry such immediate conviction that he himself is not the head rabbit. Or if you can say it in a little bit broader sense that at Watership Down, it is not strength alone that makes for leadership. Yes. It's not strength alone upon which a society is founded. It's other things as well. Yes. Of course, Vervain and Moonwar don't understand that. It's the first time it's ever crossed their minds. Uh, well, they don't. They still, at this point, don't know that Hazel isn't actually larger, isn't larger than Bigwig. Than Big Wig, right. So they're terrified <laughs> at the prospect of an even larger rabbit with sure. more authority than Bigwig that they might have to confront because Bigwig's given them all they can, they can handle. But at this time, the chief rabbit is not lurking in some uh, inner burrow protecting himself and his great strength. He's actually out doing what Hazel is good at which is executing a plan, 
What is Hazel up to during this climactic clash of armies? Christopher, your hand has been up the longest. Go ahead. Tell us what Hazel does. Hazel is fetching a dog, and he fetches the dog, and when the dog comes, all of Windwart's army is frightened away. Yes. But he gets stuck there, and he, he's, he's very tired, and soon the, this tabby cat comes prowling towards him, but the girl in the farmhouse comes and takes him in suck comes and shows her father who says leave him alone and then so she puts him down and he he sits there paralyzed for half a minute and then runs away and what what about the the conflict between woundwort and the dog at the climactic moment of the story do you remember that doesn't the dog show up at watership down Yes, he does, and he frightens Woundwort's troops away. And does Woundwort uh, face the dog in battle? No. It's funny because we don't really know. We we, we don't know what happens to Woundwort no. in the end. Woundwort disappears, and as Morgan chats, he's never seen again. And so, obviously, chances are a dog with a uh, you know with a wounded rabbit in his sights is probably going to eat him but no one ever sees woundwort again and so a legend grows up that the dog and woundwort went at it and woundwort beat him and is you know leading some some devilish warren off in the woods somewhere and so as we hear at the very end of the last chapter uh, mothers are fond in future ages of telling their babies to be good or old general Woundwort will get you. <laughs> <laughs> so we've mentioned how Bigwig and Hazel figure into defeating Woundwort. How does Fiverr figure in? What is Fiverr up to in this climactic scene? Jen and then Allie. It's hard to tell what Fiverr does because before they get attacked, it's like he's telling he's like you don't know if he's dying or living he kind of gets a case of the horrors right yeah he's just all he's saying is it's so cold he says something else though uh to vervain i think doesn't he remember he wakes up while vervain is in the in the run fighting bigwig Mm -hmm. and what does he say do you remember not really. Let's That's take okay. a look at that. Let's see. Mrs. A, read it to us. This is um, interesting. Vervain advanced slowly across the floor. Even he could derive little satisfaction from the prospect of killing a thorn rabbit half his own size in obedience to a contemptuous taunt. The small rabbit made no move whatever, either to retreat or to defend himself, but only stared at him from great eyes which, though troubled, were certainly not those of a beaten enemy or a victim. Before his gaze, Vervain stopped in uncertainty, and for a long moment... And for long moments, the two faced each other in the dim light. Then, very quietly and with no trace of fear, the strange rabbit said, I'm sorry for you with all my heart, but you cannot blame us, for you came to kill us if you could. Blame you, answered Vervain. Blame you for what? For your death. Believe me, I'm sorry for your death. Vervain in his time had encountered any number of prisoners who, before they died, had cursed or threatened him. 
not uncommonly with supernatural vengeance, much as Bigwig had cursed Woundward in the storm. If such things had been liable to have any effect on him, he would not have been head of the Aslafa. Indeed, for almost any utterance that a rabbit in this dreadful situation could find to make, Vervain was unthinkingly ready with one or other of a stock of jeering rejoinders. Now, as he continued to meet the eyes of this unaccountable enemy, the only one he had, for, or he had faced in all the long night's search for bloodshed, horror came upon him, and he was filled with a sudden fear of his words, gentle and inexorable as the falling of bitter snow in a land without refuge. The shadowy recesses of the strange burrow seemed full of whispering malignant ghosts, and he recognized the forgotten voices of rabbits done to death months since in the ditches of Ephrapha. "'Let me alone!' cried Vervain. "'Let me go! Let me go!' Stumbling and blundering, he found his way to the opened run, and dragged himself up it. At the top he came, he came upon Woundwart, listening to one of Groundsel's diggers, who was trembling and wide-eyed. "'Oh, sir,' said the youngster, "'they say there's a great chief rabbit bigger than a hare, and a strange animal they heard. "'Shut up,' said Woundwart. "'Follow me. Come on.' And off they go. So, in this little scene, how does Fiverr affect the change well, he does it the same way Fiverr's been doing it from the beginning. He he more or less calmly predicts what he has foreseen. He predicts Ephrafa's defeat and in so doing predicts Watership Down's victory and has the force of the prophet whose, whose prophecies come true behind him. So everybody basically at that climactic moment is functioning in their gift. Exactly. They're all doing what they do. And the result is... Victory for the Watership Down group, the resolution of this conflict, will they find lasting freedom and safety in a new Warren? The answer turns out to be yes, because they work together, everyone at his gift. All right, very good. So the denouement, it must be the unleashing of the dog, the deus ex machina, as the chapter title says. And the, and the fallout, which is... Uh, prosperity, safety, freedom, and prosperity for Watership Down. Hazel comes home. He's released. Hazel comes home. Does are fertile. Uh, who then, goes? Who goes back to Ephrapha and um, reforms the Warren? Isn't Is it anybody? Campion? Is it Campion? Who remembers that? I think it's Campion. I think Campion goes back. Goes back to Ephrapha and reforms it and along even a, lines there, of freedom and safety. I think he even agrees to send a party with Hazels to start a new war in between the two. Oh, that's right. They even start a third warren in between. Something Woundwort would never have done because it would have been a sacrifice of control and supremacy. Okay, so how does the story end then? What's the ending? Endings of stories are, um, sometimes they're overlooked. You know, you just kind of get to the end and you, you think, toss oh, it yeah. and move on. You but stop. Really, the ending is a significant moment in the story because it's the author's last chance to go ahead and point his reader to the ideas that, that undergird his story themes, right? Yeah, and a couple of people have chatted already that Hazel gets the call of death from the Black Rabbit. So Hazel dies. Is that the author's theme? What's a theme? How is he called? 
What does he see as he goes off with that black rabbit? What does Hazel see? Let's take a hand. Uh, let's see. Jen, go ahead. What does Hazel see in his last vision? Hazel sees this rabbit lying beside him sleeping with shining silver ears. He won and he wonders why the chamber guard let this rabbit in. Okay. And what is he really seeing? I think he's seeing the black rabbit or the what's his name? Uh It's the is he really seeing the black rabbit coming to take him away to death? The black rabbit of Inlay or Ella Ray Ra? Kylie suggests is that who he's seeing? Yeah, either that or the black rabbit of Inlay. Okay. Okay, good. And and does he have a, does he get, is he granted a vision of the future of Watership Down? Nathan, what do you think about that? Um I think that he actually sees himself mm-hmm. by Inla Hollow. Because he dies and he looks at his own body and then is taken away by Inlay. Mm-hmm. And ha- tell me about the conversation between Hazel and the the angelic rabbit, whether it's the black rabbit of Inlay or Ellery Ra, that rabbit that comes to take him to his eternal reward. He, one interesting thing is like, if it's Inlay, it doesn't seem as evil as Inlay was always described as. Inlay seems more like a final rest instead of a, final nothingness yeah what does he say to him mrs a do you you have it in front of you i've got it right here in front of me read us a a selection he says um do you want to talk to me yes that's what i've come for replied the other you know me don't you oh yes of course said hazel hoping he'd be able to remember his name in a moment then he saw that in the darkness of the burrow the stranger's ears were shining with a faint silver light yes my lord he said yes i know you you've been feeling tired said the stranger but i can do something about that I've come to ask whether you'd care to join my Ausla. We should be glad to have you, and you'll enjoy it. If you're ready, we might go along now. They went out past the young sentry, who paid the visitor no attention. The sun was shining, and in spite of the cold, there were a few bucks and does at Silflay, keeping out of the wind as they nibbled the shoots of spring grass. It seemed to Hazel that he would not be needing his body any more, so he left it on the edge of the ditch, but stopped for a moment to watch his rabbits and to try to get used to the extraordinary feeling that strength and speed were flowing inexhaustibly out of him into their sleek young bodies and healthy senses. You needn't worry about them, said his companion. They'll be all right, and thousands like them. If you'll come along, I'll show you what I mean. He reached the top of the bank in a single powerful leap. Hazel followed, and together they slipped away, running easily down through the wood where the first primroses were beginning to bloom. And that's the end. So in the final little conversation between this other rabbit and Hazel, the author kind of puts a fine point on the question, the story question. He does indeed. Absolutely. And what's the verdict? Will they find lasting freedom and safety in a new Warren? Don't worry about them. They'll be all right. And thousands like them. So 
they have successfully established a lasting warrant with freedom and safety. So what are the thematic ideas that the intersection of that conflict and the climactic moment seem to point to? What Mrs. A means, by the way, for those of you who are unfamiliar with our approach, is that the climactic moment up here at the top of this of the story chart resolves the conflict at the bottom. So those two things are connected. And in between, this line also goes through the theme of the story. And so it reminds us that the theme has to do with which conflict is resolved at that climactic moment. And the way that the conflict is resolved really right. um, sheds a lot of light on what kind of thematic ideas the author is trying to bring to the forefront of his reader's mind. So here we have, will the group find lasting freedom and safety in a new warren? Will they be able to establish a new warren um, with freedom and safety? And the climactic moment where this basically is affected is this clash of armies at Watership Down. And as we looked at that climactic moment um, kind of uh, in detail, uh-huh. we noticed that the way that this was accomplished was by each individual uh, character in the story, the main characters in the story, actually doing what they do best. Big Wig fights using his strength and obeying, basically, his leader that he's come to respect. Hazel does what he does best. He puts himself, he hazards life and limb to loose the dog, right? Fiverr does what he does best. He prophesies with conviction. And the result is, as everybody does their part, they win for themselves lasting freedom and safety. Is it too weird to say it this way? Freedom and safety as the result of democratic cooperation. Well, I think that's exactly, it seems to me, exactly what the author's demonstrating or suggesting with his story. And so you could say, based on this structural analysis of the story, that that's one of the main ideas that the author is trying to Talk about. So what we could say in order to to arrive at a discussion of theme is how, how is lasting freedom and safety affected for a new Warren? Well, as each individual does his part and functions um, under his own gifts, right? In this society that seems to respect every individual and what mm-hmm. he brings to bear for the group, uh, freedom and safety are secured. You could also say there's a, there's something else I think besides democratic democratic cooperation that's in involved in that climactic moment, and it, it what it is is self sacrifice. Yes. Each of the main characters of service. Each of the main characters in that last moment are serving their fellows, mm-hmm. even at their own risk. Absolutely. So Bigwig certainly is. Hazel certainly is. Even Fiverr is you know calm and not defending himself before Vervain, who's there to kill him. They're serving um, one another, and they're also serving the larger idea that they've all bought into, which is this um, this warren where they can live a natural, rapid life mm-hmm. uh, with freedom mm-hmm. and with some degree of safety. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now, are, are and you thought this themes, was just a cute story about rabbits. Other themes that seem to leap to the surface here would be um, the ideas of what's a perfect society, right? Well, in this story, what's a perfect society? It's a society in which an individual can function in their gifts and enjoy freedom and relative safety. What about what's a good leader? What's a good leader, yeah. What's the story say about what a good leader is? Well, we talked a little bit about, about that earlier when we were discussing the differences and comparing and contrasting the different leaders uh, in the story, mm-hmm. right? So the, the, this story is a meditation on 
leadership. It's a meditation on the good society or the good life. And it's a kind of a pretty strong statement about where freedom and safety for a society comes from. Nathan says an interesting way to put it here in the chat box. A good leader not only leads from the front, but also allows others to lead from the front. Yes. Yeah. Seems to be what Adams is saying. Yeah, I think so too. What do you guys think about that? Do you agree with what Adams seems to be saying in this story? In your own experience, is that the kind of leader that you naturally want to follow? A leader like Hazel, who looks for ways to bring the people under his charge out into their own, give them space to do their thing. A leader who puts himself in harm's way to keep them safe. Here's a better question. Is that the kind of leader you naturally try to be? Or are you intimidated? I'm intimidated. Do you think that leadership um, always is accompanied by a show of force, brute strength, size, the guy with the biggest stick wins? That's a thought-provoking question, isn't it? Hmm. I wonder, uh, are we saying, Mrs. A, that Richard Adams actually went to write Watership Down in order to talk about these things? Or are we reading those things into the story? Well, we're certainly not reading them in because there they are existing in the story. Now, his reasons for talking about this, he didn't care to share those with us. In fact, he went, he went on record saying he didn't actually write this story in order to talk about, for example, Hitler's Germany and Nazi oppression. It was not his goal to talk about that. Well, no, he, his goal was to tell a story to his daughters. Right. Which is where the story originated. But when you read the story, you can definitely see he that he was comparing and contrasting different societies and different modes of leadership. He didn't make up Ephrathah um, completely out of his head. There are some details in the world around him to go on. So his goal might not have been to, um, to talk about communist society uh, in his time period, but communist society does creep up in his story. Right. So we don't understand the reasons that he talked about these things, but we can see that he did talk about these things because there it is in his text. Because there they are. Yeah. Well, great. Thank you guys for your participation today. I really appreciate it. That was a lot of fun. Uh, Before I let you go, I want to suggest that you consider joining us for the fall uh, Center for Lit Live class. And we actually have three high school classes that are available to you depending on your experience and the books that you've read before and they're showing on my screen now if you care to take a look uh, for high school students we have a world lit course we're going to do discussions just like we did today on the book of job homer's odyssey beowulf virgil's aeneid dante's inferno the canterbury tales the three musketeers one day in the life of ivan denisovich and c.s lewis's the great divorce if you're interested in a british lit Uh, For high school students, we're going to have discussions very similar to what we had tonight on Shakespeare's King Lear, John Milton's Paradise Lost, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte, C.S. Lewis's classic Till We Have Faces, Charles Dickens' Little Dorrit, and William Shakespeare's Hamlet, in addition to discussing English poets on two different occasions. So a great British lit course uh, in store for you. And finally, if you're interested in American lit, we're going to do Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn, uh, Ernest Hemingway's short stories, The Red Badge of Courage by Stephen Crane, F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby, The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, 
Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, a book you may not have heard of called Peace Like a River by Leif Enger, which is going to change your life, and a selection of short stories by the great American author Flannery O'Connor. So those are just some of the uh, the books we're going to be discussing next year. If you're interested in signing up for one of those classes, you can go to this page on our website, just centerforlit.com, and click the online academy link. You'll find all the information you need in order to sign up and join us. We start the first week in September and go right on through uh, the 1st of June, meeting about once a month for two hours. And we also have a writing course available if you're interested in learning how to write literary analyses uh, that are uh, basically according to a college lit model. We'll teach you all the ins and outs of doing that as well. So all the info's on our website and we invite you to go there and uh, and join us if you like. Don't forget the Understanding Poetry class, Mr. Ed. Oh, that's right. I forgot all about it. It's staring me right in the face. We also have an Understanding Poetry class for high school students. Those of you who like poetry and would like to know uh, the ins and outs of reading it correctly, understanding its forms and genres, it's going to be an in-depth course taught by Mrs. A and by Emily Andrews as well. We are really looking forward to that one. This will be our first time teaching it, so we've got all kinds of energy for it. So if you have any questions about the, the classes we offer in the fall, you can get in touch with me anytime, adam at centerforlit.com or find our uh, information on the website. Anything else to share, Mrs. A, before we let everybody go? Mm, not that I can think of at the moment, but this was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for coming and joining us tonight. We loved it. If you are um, signed up for one of our future summer sessions for this summer, we look forward to seeing you already. And if not, I hope you have a great rest of the summer. And I'm going to go ahead and sign off. Thanks again for coming. Until we meet again, my friends, happy reading. Good night, everybody. 